We're going to tackle the first part of that passage that Joe just read this morning. We're nearing the end of our series through 1 Peter, and today Peter has some things to say to elders. Uh, so I exhort the elders among you. So we're going to handle the first five verses of chapter 5, and then we've got about two or three weeks left uh, in 1 Peter, which is kind of sad. Don't you feel like uh, kind of by the end of the book, you kind of start to feel like you understand the book and uh, I often want to uh, start a series all over again because I feel like I'm ready to preach it by the time we're finished uh, exploring it together. But today we are uh, we're looking at these first five verses. Now, it's two elders, and so you might think, okay, you know, I'm not an elder, so it doesn't apply to me. Uh, there are quite, we have elders in our congregation. We have wives of elders, and so that's important. Uh, we have future elders here. We have past elders. We have people who will mentor elders. And so, uh, so there you probably tackle about half the congregation. Uh, but the principles that he's giving are good leadership principles that apply to anyone in a leadership position. And so even though Peter is speaking directly to people who have the official office of elder in a congregation, nevertheless... Uh, these are good leadership principles for parents, uh, small group leaders, and so on. And so we're going to learn some things together this morning. Draw your attention, first of all, to verse 1. Verse 1 is basically a heading where Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder uh, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, dot, dot, dot. So he's going to continue here. But he's basically saying, okay, now all of the elders, I want to talk to you for a second. And I have the right to do that because, first of all, I'm a fellow elder. I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I'm also a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So I'm going to look at a couple of those things there because this ties into what Peter has been talking about through the entire book. Uh, first of all, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which could mean that he actually watched Jesus uh, during those last few days or weeks of his life, watched Jesus on the cross. But probably more what he has in mind is what he has been talking about throughout the book up to this point, which is that when we suffer, when we suffer as Christ, we actually share in Christ's sufferings. So, Probably what Peter is after here is he's saying, listen, I know that elders are going to end up suffering in unique ways because endurance through suffering is really one of the great, one of the probably two major themes of the book of First Peter. And he says, I know that elders are going to suffer in a unique way, and I'm going to tell you some things here, and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I've experienced these things myself. And so first he says, you know, witness to the sufferings of Christ uh, so you ask, you know, how did Christ suffer? And I think this is important. This ties us to the great themes of the entire book, and these are things that we all need to pay attention to because these concepts of enduring through suffering uh, apply to all of us in all of our relationships. How did Christ suffer? And Peter elaborates on this in chapter 2, verse 21. Do you remember back when he said, uh, keep your conduct uh, among the Gentiles honorable? And then he gives several examples, citizens, uh, to government, uh, slaves, master, wives, husbands, and so on. And in the middle of that presentation, he says, I know that in these kind of relationships, you're going to suffer. And Jesus Christ is the example of what that kind of suffering looks like. And in verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, for to this you have been called. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's very important. By his wounds, you have been healed. And he basically says, listen, that's the kind of suffering that you need to be bringing into your relationships and the very common relationships. I mean, the the relationship of a citizen to government, the relationship of a slave to his master, which at that time was very common, the relationship of a wife to a husband and then a husband to a wife. Now he's uh, bringing in the theme of leadership here. But in these relationships, ordinary relationships, we suffer. And Peter is saying Jesus Christ is the example of what that kind of suffering looks like. He makes a strong connection between the wounds of Jesus Christ on the cross and the wounds that we receive when we love people. Uh, Just by way of illustration, uh, I think I told you about a couple that I met a few weeks ago in Romania who decided to move their whole family. They had a bunch of young kids at the time, and now they're all in high school. One is in college. They moved over to Romania because they just had a heart for all of the little babies over there that were growing up in these orphanages without anybody taking care of them. Apparently, the process is that uh, moms uh, will just leave the babies at the hospital. The hospital doesn't have the staff to take care of them. And so they get, and this is not exaggerating, this isn't hyperbole, but these kids get a few diaper changes every day. Uh, They get a couple of bottles, but they are not held. They're not played with. And so what the Mathers decided to do was move their family over, and at first they worked with an orphanage, and eventually they started an orphanage in order to rescue these kids that had been abandoned at these hospitals and bring them into a loving environment, these kids that didn't have parents, didn't have anyone taking care of them. And, uh, you know, the Mathers are very, very normal people. Sometimes you think about missionaries as just being the weirdest people that you could ever imagine. Uh, But, you know, you sit down over lunch with the Mathers, and you could be talking to any one of us. These people are not any more spiritual. They're not any more mature than any of us. That's, That's one remarkable thing about the mission field is that people are just as dysfunctional uh, there as we are uh, here. You think, uh, well, this is the cream of the crop, right? These are the, the professional Christians that move overseas to do these fantastic things, when in reality, you know, they have arguments with each other. Uh, well, last time I was there, I saw one of them crying on the phone because another missionary said something insensitive. I mean, that's, th- these are normal people with normal experiences. And these folks just decided, you know what, we're going to move our family uh, to another part of the world, and we're going to go where where there's a great need and we're going to take care of people. And you think about the kind of sacrifices that the Mathers made in moving their young kids over there and and leaving what was a good and uh, comfortable life in uh, in the Portland area. And one of the things that Cammie Mather said to me the last time that I talked to her, she said, you know, We got into this thinking it would be a short-term thing, probably a year or two, but you know what? The kids don't stop coming. I don't know how we could ever leave because these kids, you know, they don't stop getting dropped off here. And uh, so it's a very complex problem. Apparently there in Bucharest, they take uh, a lot of care. The state takes a lot of care of their orphanages because 
Romania has a bad reputation as it relates to the orphanages, and so they try to keep them nice when people come to visit. Uh, but it's in all of these little cities and towns that are outside the main areas where these little kids right at this very moment are laying in a metal, kitten, metal crib, and, uh, and no one loves them. No one is taking care of them. And uh, what kinds of ways do we suffer in relationships for other people? You might have a, a complainer at church, just kind of a difficult person and, you know, always seems to be kind of in a bad mood. And you see that person in the lobby and you think, oh, you know, getting caught in a conversation with this person could be uh, challenging. Uh, maybe uh, your, your spouse wakes up angry one day and you just... You just think, oh boy, you know, what am I in for today? We suffer in relationships, and God tells us to keep loving people. Don't walk away from people. In fact, Richard Baxter, when he's talking about marriage and conflict in marriage, he says when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, it's basically, he calls it the diseased fit, which I like because it calls it what it is. There's no excuse for acting like that. And he calls it the diseased fit, and he tells uh, the, uh, the spouse to silently and gently bear it. That's, that's very countercultural, isn't it? It's very opposed to what our heart naturally wants to do uh, when we end up with someone who's difficult, when we see a great need to silently and gently bear it. So there are all kinds of ways in ordinary relationships and in amazing stories like, uh, like with the Mathers. God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that is a radical new center of what's important to us because usually what's important to us is is kind of what's inside our skin and the bible says love your neighbor as yourself which pushes the center of our concern uh, away from ourselves and if we seriously do that if we love people as paul says to husbands in ephesians 5 love your wives as christ if we really love people as christ willing to die for people, then we are going to suffer. We take up our cross. The very word grace implies endurance through suffering. And so this is a major theme, and Peter begins this section for elders by saying, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I, I, I know what this is about, and I'm asking you as elders to consider these points. And it's interesting what Peter says now to the elders, because it's different from what you see in other sections of Scripture. In other sections of scripture, we see the qualifications of an elder, able to teach, uh, you know, and all these different things that the, that the elder needs to be able to do, good reputation and all of that sort of thing. But here he does something completely different, and he focuses in on the heart of the elder. So first, witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he says, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed there in the latter part of verse 1. He's a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The other major theme of 1 Peter, it's interesting that they both pop up right here in this one verse. First, endurance through suffering, particularly in ordinary relationships. And second, partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter talks a lot about the end times, which is nice because he also talks a lot about suffering. And so the end times are that light at the end of the tunnel that Peter keeps reminding the people about because this life is going to be difficult. We take up our cross, we follow Christ uh, we, bring actual, we, we actually bring our own self-death into relationships in order to love people and take care of people. And so he keeps reminding them. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, he talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
Uh, in chapter 113, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 11, he calls us sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. This isn't all there is. It is not death to die. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. In chapter 223 and 419, he tells us to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. You know, we suffer all kinds of injustice and we're tempted to take vengeance or run. But he says, listen, keep in those relationships, keep loving people, keep being gracious with people because we're just trusting that eventually our God who is all powerful and sovereign and just is going to come and make all things right. Um, in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 4, this section we're looking at today, he talks about the glory that is going to be revealed and the unfading crown of glory. He keeps putting our focus on the end times. And uh, so these are very important ways to begin this section because what he's about to say to elders is almost absurd. He's going to say some things to leaders that are just very uh, different from what our hearts naturally do. And so before he gets into that, he reminds them of these two major things that he's been hitting in almost every section of this short letter. Uh, he, he reminds them that we suffer as a representative of Jesus Christ. We literally reenact the gospel in relationships with people, and that's a very powerful thing to do. Secondarily, we can endure through that. We can persevere through that because Jesus is, Jesus is coming back. And we can trust God uh, with our souls. So now he's going to go, after, after this heading here, he's going to, uh, and we're going to take this phrase by phrase, now he's going to list some leadership qualities. And so look, look with me here at verse 2 of chapter 5. First he says to shepherd the flock of God. And, you know, we've been talking about shepherding for a while at Cornerstone, maybe the last six to nine months uh, we've been talking a lot about shepherding because this has become very important to us as elders. Um, shepherds are responsible for other people. It's just inherent in the term. A shepherd is someone who is responsible. If you fall asleep on the job as a shepherd, then sheep die. If you decide, ah, I'm going to go hang with my buddies today, then, then the sheep scatter. Uh, if I'm taking care of the sheep only for for uh, the wrong motivations and stuff. And these sheep will be abused and not cared for and loved. And so you have these phrases that, uh, of responsibility that appear throughout this section here. You see the phrase exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God exercising oversight. And down in verse 3, you see the phrase those in your charge. You see, elders are responsible for people. That's, that's part of the job. That's, that's the main thing that elders do is they are responsible for other people. And part of leadership oversight is the organization of people. In the book of Titus, Paul is talking in verse 5, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, churches are organizations of people. God doesn't want us to be scattered all over the place and living life on our own uh, totally isolated and so on. He knows that we need each other and he knows that we need the organizational structure of living life under authority of elders. And so uh, just there he's talking to Titus and there he says, I, I want you to put what remained into order. There's something about what an elder does in exercising oversight that organizes people. 
And the Bible doesn't tell us how to organize people. So there are all kinds of different things that are completely acceptable. And all kinds of creativity can go into the way that we organize churches in different ways. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how to organize people, but the Bible does tell us why to organize people. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a long explanation of basically what elders, what church leaders are supposed to do. Let me read this to you here. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin in verse 11. Uh, Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So he's basically listing a whole bunch of different uh, kinds of leaders in the church. Uh, and he, he says, And he gave these folks to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the longest sentences you've ever read there. All the English teachers are going, oh, goodness, how about some periods? Uh, but what he's saying there is, listen, here's what elders do. Here's what church leaders do is they organize people uh, to equip, to build up, to attain unity, uh, to promote knowledge, to promote maturity and help people grow up, to live lives that resemble Jesus Christ. He talks about doctrinal sturdiness. He talks about being built up in love. These are the things that church leaders are supposed to organize people uh, in order to do. And so it's important that we find out as church leaders, what, what does God ask us to do? What does the Bible tell us to do? And this is important because leaders are ultimately stewards. This, this is not, uh, Cornerstone doesn't belong to the elders of Cornerstone or to even the congregation of Cornerstone. Uh, we don't even belong to each other. People says, shepherd the flock of God. Do you see that? I mean, we shepherd as stewards, shepherd the flock of God. It's very important that we recognize who we belong to so that as elders, we are careful to read God's word in order to find out how God wants us to go about doing this. In Acts chapter 20, 28, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, God basically says, listen, this church is mine, <laughs> and I'm putting you as a steward over this in order to do exactly what I ask you to do over this group of people. And we are to do it, you see there in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 2, right at the end of chapter 2, we're to, we are to do this not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Don't, uh, don't become an elder by just being dragged into the role. Wayne Grudeman commenting on this verse, he says, not doing the job simply out of obligation or because someone has to do it, but because the elder has freely and willingly chosen to carry out this valuable work. Now, why? I mean, this is one of the first things that Peter is saying. Why, out of all the things you could say in this very short, very pithy book, uh, 
Why does he start with this? Why would an elder be reluctant to serve? Why would a man in the congregation be reluctant to become an elder? Now, you could make maybe a long list, but Chuck Swindoll recently was speaking to a group of teenagers, and he offered this list of leadership lessons. There are ten things here, and I noticed that four of them relate to what we're talking about here today. So I'll read you all ten just because it's Chuck Swindoll in a school. So these are leadership lessons. And the first one he starts off with is he says, you know, this is a guy who's been ministering for decades. And here he's speaking to all the future leaders of the church. And he says, number one, it's lonely to lead. Leadership involves tough decisions. The tougher the decision, the lonelier it is. Number two, it's dangerous to succeed. I'm most concerned for those who aren't even 30 and are very gifted and successful. Sometimes God uses someone right out of youth, but usually he uses leaders who have been crushed. Three, it's hardest at home. No one ever told me this in seminary. It's true. It's hardest to lead at home. Number four, it's essential to be real. If there's one realm where phoniness is common, it's among leaders. Stay real. Number five, here's another one that relates to our passage here today. He says, it's painful to obey. The Lord will direct you to do some things that won't be your choice. Invariably, you will give up what you want to do for the cross. Number six, brokenness and failure are necessary. I'm guessing that this book wouldn't sell very well if you tried to uh, publish this. Number seven. Attitude is more important than actions. Your family may not have told you. Some of you are hard to be around. A bad attitude overshadows good actions. Number eight, integrity eclipses image. Today we highlight image, but it's what you're doing behind the scenes. Number nine, God's way is better than my way. And number 10, Christ-likeness begins and ends with humility. So here you have a leader of the church. He's trained leaders down there at Dallas. He's been a pastor for decades. Now, why would an elder be reluctant to be an elder? Why would a man who is, uh, who is an elder being asked to be an elder, why would you be reluctant to do this? And I think that the answer is because if you've been around the church for a while, you know that these 10 things are part of the gig. If a guy's been close to leadership and someone asks him to serve, you know, this this guy's going to think twice. I know what this is about. And one defense mechanism is to approach the role reluctantly so that I'm not actually fully engaged with taking care of people. It's a self-protect mechanism. I'll take care of of these folks, but I don't want the burden of taking care of a lot. I come to meetings, I'll perform certain duties, but I hold my heart away from people because otherwise I get hurt. Good shepherds, on the other hand, take up the cross. Take up the cross. Let's say you have an angry man in the congregation who's stirring the pot of some kind of gossip or uh, going after some of the weaker people in the congregation and disturbing them in some way. It's an elder's responsibility to grab that uh, man by the collar and bring him in for a little chat. And you know, that kind of work is not fun and it is not glamorous. 
But shepherds do it because they are responsible for people, and shepherds do it because they are willing. So it's important for leaders to remember that it is not, you see, in, at the end of verse 2 of chapter 5, it is not for shameful gain. It is not for shameful gain. You think about some of the big, the big things that can be gained by bossing people around, and they would be things like money, status, and power. And, you know, people can sniff that from a million miles away. I don't, I don't know how you explain some of the, some of the churches that grow uh, founded on folks that, uh, that are in it for money, status, and power, but for some reason some people are attracted to that. But these are the big, these are the big ones that are tempting for leaders. When, when we lead people, we have the ability to milk money, status, and power. And people can see that. This guy's using us. And you can just see that. You can see that there's a certain swagger. There's a little bit too much of an indulgence and in, a little bit too much of an enjoyment in the, in, in the position. Now, you know that preaching um, and teaching can sometimes be a real rush at first. At first. It's great to be the leader. It's fun to be the expert. And I think a lot of folks hop into seminary or sign up to lead a small group because those things are just fun. And you know, when the criticisms pile up and when the group shrinks to half the size that it was when you started and all of that kind of stuff, how hard are you going to scramble in order to get that rush back? And that's when you find out whether or not you're a good leader or not. Is this elder going to remain faithful or is he going to pervert the role for shameful gain? And you face that challenge of the difficulties of leadership. You face the reality that this gig is about suffering and modeling that suffering in a gracious way. And you either jump back into the role as God created it, that is, loving people as Christ, embracing the crush or you tweak the job a little bit. Just make a couple of uh, adjustments to the role in order to protect yourself or add a couple of goodies to make it not quite as difficult. How, how hard do we scramble in order to get the rush back, that first rush of, the, of that brilliant insight into scripture where everybody's nodding their head and crying or laughing and you just think this is cool and then the criticisms come and the people walk away and you know how hard do you scramble in order to get that rush back Peter defines the Christian life as endurance through suffering take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ and elders should model this and they should do it at the very end of verse 2 eagerly not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I think it's interesting that he sets those things up as juxtapositions. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know that eagerness in the role of an elder is the polar opposite, opposite of shameful gain. Uh, even though, because what happens here is you realize that the earthly gain of being an elder is fairly puny all things considered. The earthly gain is fairly puny, and there is much to lose, much to suffer, and elders, good shepherds, remain eager. Why? 
uh, I think probably because they understand God's grace for them. And so they live it. And they feel compassion for those who are straying, for those who are hurting. Eagerly, similar to the word just a few phrases ago, willingly. What, what's happening here is an, eager, is, is, is an elder is one, a good shepherd is one that says, you know, come what may, <laughs> come what may, I'm going to serve these people. Notice how the focus here is on the heart. We're not talking techniques. These aren't the five keys to doubling the size of your small group or anything like that. This isn't the, uh, it's, it's not about that at all. This is going after the heart of a leader. Where's your heart? You know, we are broken people and none of us are qualified for this, for this job of taking care of each other and certainly none of us are qualified for leading God's church, this place where Jesus Christ is the head. And yet we embrace God's grace and we embrace his power and we jump in. So eagerly there. And then in verse 3, he says, not domineering. Not domineering. You see, when people become difficult to lead, some authority figures just get loud. You know what that's like when you're supposed to be in charge of a charge of a group of people and things aren't going quite right and the natural instinct is to do what Arnold Schwarzenegger does in Kindergarten Cop and he walks into the room and he goes, stop screwing around. Remember that? That's the temptation is that we just, you know, if I would just get a little bit louder and Dobson, when he's talking to parents about shouting at their kids, he says, getting your kid to do what you want them to do by shouting is like trying to drive a car by honking the horn. You know, maybe if I get louder, maybe if I get angry, maybe if I do this or that, then people will snap too. But good shepherds are not domineering. And I think part of the reason for that is that good leaders, good shepherds are thinking about the long term. And they're willing to grow oak trees and they're willing to be patient with folks. And so we don't need the quick change. We don't need the perfectly clean environment. We don't need an organizational structure that even looks good on paper. Uh, and this is because we're, we're just doing real life with folks, and that is messy, and good leaders know that, and so they don't have any need to yell and scream and shout and, and uh, feel sorry for themselves and try to manipulate folks by throwing a tantrum and so on. Now, in not being domineering, does that mean that the elder is not in authority? And no, what domineering is, is kind of like, a, you know, a boss can be a boss and can be in charge, but a boss can also be bossy, and that's a bad thing. And that's what we're getting across here. That's what the passage is, uh, is saying here. Uh, literally, the domineering uh, means, you know, becoming master or subduing, or those of you who are reading from the NIV this morning, not lording it over, Okay. Leaders, biblical leaders, are not heavy-handed people. They might admonish people very clearly and boldly. They might uh, insist on a certain uh, order or grace uh, to be experienced in the congregation. These, these are people who uh, have little bumps in the middle of their back that are noticeable, 
You know, I mean, they have spines. These good leaders are, can be strong, but should not be domineering, should not be bossy. You know, all these same things apply to, uh, to dads, to parents, to small group leaders, to all different kinds of leadership. He's speaking, again, specifically to elders here, but I think you can see the overlap for a lot of other ways when we oversee people. The image of a shepherd is the sort of person who leads people to green pastures, leads people to quiet waters, not uh, a dictator. You know, a shepherd is somebody who binds up people's wounds, not just bosses them around so that, you know, things are less irritating and frustrating. And the trick for a leader is to oversee people who generally don't want to be led. When you're overseeing a group of people who generally don't want to be led and don't want to live under authority, then how do you do that without being domineering? Uh, Part of it might be having the guts to preach a couple of passages like this. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think that's supposed to be funny. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Yes, well, in verse 3, middle section there, he says that elders are to live as examples to the flock. Elders live the Christian life in front of people so that other people can see how it works. That's what elders do. We live in a close enough community that you can observe people like Don and Wayne and Ed and myself, and you watch the kind of lives that your elders lead, and then you imitate it. That's what elders are for examples to the flock. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know, the early church leaders went so far as to instruct people to watch them. And it wasn't just the biblical writers, but this was just built into the authority structure of Christ. And you see this in some of the early church letters and writings. Watch, watch the way your pastor lives. Watch the way your elders live. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, how do you say that? (laughs) How do you say that without having a big head? Then you have this wonderful balance here that continues here. In, you see down in verse 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Humility is an overarching characteristic. Leaders are the types of people who realize that they have no business even being anywhere near the Lord. They ought to be flat on the face, shouldn't be able to stand in judgment because God's holiness blows them over. But Uh, You know, leaders are the types of folks who are so aware of their own sin that they are tearfully appreciative of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And that has a certain 
uh, way of impacting the way that they live their lives so that they are actually clothed with humility. There in verse 5, Augustine said, Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues, hence. In the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, which many of you have read in regard to the business world, he says the vast majority of CEOs are, quote, concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness. And he actually recognizes, and I think this is just God's common grace, revealing just a basic common sense truth, that companies that do best are the ones where the CEOs have what he calls a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will which is to say that there's this humility that goes into making sure that this company survives no matter what. That the, it's not about boosting my reputation or anything like that. It's, it's uh, brought into the organization. Now, I think this is just God's common grace revealing a basic truth to Jim Collins. I think uh, the scriptural truth that shines much more gloriously is that elders need a paradoxical blend of personal humility and kingdom-mindedness. So you combine this deep sense of humility with a desire that no matter what happens, no matter what it costs, I want to push back the gates of hell and see God's church expand on this earth. I want to take care of the people in God's church, come what may. So you have this every ounce, every molecule of energy and time and resources that elders throw into the church of God. Elders, great leaders, will suffer anything for the church. Clothe yourselves with humility. How do you become humble? I was kind of wondering about this week. I mean, it's, uh, it's one thing to say, be humble, but then how do you actually go out and become humble? Um, and I... I think you could probably answer that question in a million ways. But in order to tie it to First Peter, uh, I think the best advice is that we become humble when we choose to love people in ordinary moments of life. Not the great fantastic stuff that ends up on Nightline or whatever, but I'm talking about just the ordinary, quiet, unseen, no applause moments of life loving a real sinner a real person and continuing to love that person enduring in love toward that person no matter how they treat you and i think that begins to have the effect of bringing humility into a person's life because you recall what paul said that jesus christ came to save sinners of whom i am the foremost i think as we begin to run into the sin of other people if we have any kind of biblical or spiritual insight we begin to see the same things in our own hearts and we appreciate what god has done for us by sending his son jesus to pay the penalty for all of that sin simply by putting my trust in him simply by confessing my sins i'm forgiven by god i'm loved eternally i'm going to be brought safely home to be with him forever, and that kind of grace, that kind of love and persevering in love with someone, loving people in ordinary moments, I think, makes a person humble. Suffering injustice without feeling sorry for oneself. Suffering injustice without playing the victim. True humility is, I think, kind of the unseen frame of the building on which a gracious life hangs. And you see, he concludes all of this by talking about the unfading crown of glory. He brings it all back to what he started with and what he's been talking about throughout the entire book. He says, 
you know, leaders, just keep persevering with leadership. Keep shepherding. Keep overseeing God's people. Keep, keep doing this. Keep loving. Keep sacrificing. Keep taking up your cross because this unfading crown of glory is something that we're looking forward to and aspiring to. In Matthew 5, verse 11, this applies to way more than just elders. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Paul talked about how the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. See, there's a measure being taken here uh, by God that, yes, we absolutely suffer, but God's glory is much better. There is a heavenly reward. Your reward is great in heaven. And that glorious reward, whatever it is, doesn't explain it. But whatever that reward is will outweigh the intensity of those sufferings. Romans 2, 6. This is interesting. 6 and 7. Romans 2, 6 and 7. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality... He will give eternal life. It's entirely appropriate to seek for the kind of heavenly reward, to seek for glory and honor and immortality that come as a result, as a reward of patience in well-doing. There is some kind of heavenly reward for endurance through suffering, and we need to know that, and we need to pursue that. This is a great motivation for becoming an elder, for accepting the call of an elder. I heard a story from my mother-in-law who was teaching a Bible study on the subject of heavenly reward and that God rewards um, the behavior that we, uh, that we exhibit here as Christians. And uh, in this small group setting, there were a husband and wife where the husband was just a bum and just never really took good care of his wife. And there were lots of tears on the part of the wife as uh, she and my mother-in-law took walks together and all this other kind of stuff because of the pain that this husband was bringing into uh, his wife's life. And he's sitting here in the middle of this Bible study and he's listening to uh, the truth that God rewards these kinds of behaviors. And you might be in, in terms of confessing your sins and repenting, uh, or, or repenting and putting your faith in God. You might be in and you might have this lukewarm passion about uh, pursuing the Lord and so on. But what this guy all of a sudden realized as he sat there in that Bible study is that he was missing out on heavenly reward because he was a bum husband. And that was a motivation for him, and I think an appropriate one, for him to change his ways. And he did change his ways. Jonathan Edwards talked about... uh, heaven and heavenly reward he said in heaven all shall be perfectly happy everyone shall be perfectly satisfied the exaltation of some in heaven above the rest will be so far from diminishing the perfect happiness and joy of the rest who are inferior that they will be the happier for it such will be the union in their society that they will be partakers of each other's happiness then will be fulfilled in its perfections that which is declared in first corinthians 12:22 If one of the members be honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's hard for us not to have that competitive nature. It's not fair. His 
crown is bigger than mine. It's not fair. His measure of enjoyment is larger than mine. But I think what Edward says here is that with our sin nature removed, we won't have that competitive nature anymore. And that some folks in heaven will actually have greater reward will also bring us happiness as we see them experience their greater reward, whatever that reward is. Let me just conclude with this. This is an exhortation to the elders among you. Exhortation is when you urge strongly or when you call someone to your side or when you instill somebody with courage or cheer, uh, when you make a strong request of someone. And here is Peter, the great apostle, and he is speaking to folks in the church and he's saying, I know that taking care of people is hard. And it probably feels a little bit glamorous at first and, and so on. But being an elder is hard work. And you're going to suffer. And you're going to experience all kinds of pain through the years and through the decades just because you're taking care of people. You're, you're making yourself the one who has to speak decisions. And so, you know, leadership can be hard. But listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross taking care of you. Let that be the model for you so that you can reenact what Jesus Christ did for you, so that you can reenact that day after day, year after year, decade after decade in a congregation of people. Let Jesus Christ be your model because, listen, the the role of elder is not about any kind of earthly gain. It is about heavenly reward. And you're you're not just going to be able to endure the pain of being an elder because the end is coming and there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but there is actually great reward for what you will endure as a leader. So keep jumping in and taking care of people. Keep uh, allowing your heart to beat for people who are lost and strained and wounded and, and difficult. Keep going after these folks. Lead them to green pastures. Lead them to cool waters and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. May God bless us continually with elders like that. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for being clear to us in your word about what the Christian life is all about. We often pervert every word in order to make things how we would like them. And God, I pray that you would organize us as a church more and more into your likeness. Help us to grow up and to increase in knowledge and maturity so that you can be glorified and enjoyed more fully in this place. I pray that you would continue to bless Cornerstone with good shepherds and I pray that you would help all of us to live under the authority that you put in our lives we need you desperately and we thank you for providing the church for us we pray these things in Jesus name Amen